Um, I pointed something out, and I'd like to point that out again, and then just drill down into that just a little bit more. Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 6, says this, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of, a man of sorrows, right? And acquainted with grief. Verse 4, I'm um, sorry, as, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, there's that word again, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The thing I pointed out last week was in verse 4, that the word translated griefs in verse 4 and in verse 3, those words are usually translated in the Bible as sicknesses or diseases. And the word translated sorrows in verse 4 usually refers to physical pain and suffering. Physical pain and suffering. These things... That is, sickness and physical suffering are said to be born by Jesus Christ. And that just sort of opened up a whole, you know, I do all of this thinking and reading and studying and stuff that you never talk about in a sermon. So this is my chance to get it out there. (laughs) And so one of those things that I started to think about was divine healing. And this is one of those passages that uh, people go to to defend the idea of divine healing as um, as being rooted in the atonement. So the question is simply this, as it's often put, is there healing, that is physical healing, is there healing in the atonement? A.J. Gordon was a pastor of a large Baptist church in um, in Boston in the late 1800s. And he wrote an influential book titled The Ministry of Healing. And in that book he said this, The yoke of his cross by which he lifted our iniquities took hold also of our diseases so that it is in some sense true that God, as God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, so God made him to be sick for us who knew no sickness. If now it be true that our Redeemer and Substitute bore our sicknesses, it would be natural to reason at once that he bore them, that we might not bear them. Albert Simpson, another pastor, better known usually as A.B. Simpson, who was a Canadian Presbyterian in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and he uh, attended a conference at which he believed that he received physical healing, and he went on to write a book called titled The Gospel of Healing. This was 1885. And in that book, he asserted that physical healing in the atonement, there was physical healing in the atonement of Jesus Christ, that is, Christ purchased physical healing for us, and that this was available upon request by faith to sick people as they called out to the Lord that they could be healed in this life. Well, Simpson's book was influential in a number of Christian denominations, Um, including the one he founded, the Christian Missionary Alliance, the CMA Church. Um, He spoke about the full gospel as opposed to a kind of truncated gospel that preached Christ only as a deliverer from sins. 
the, the full gospel or the fourfold gospel is that Christ is Savior. That is, he brings deliverance from sin and justification before God, but he's also sanctifier. That's an important aspect of his salvation. And for, for him and, and people who followed in his train, sanctification was viewed as a second act of grace by which someone could be entirely sanctified in a, in a kind of crisis moment in his life. There was, you give your heart to Christ in salvation, and then you receive sanctification as a second act of grace. Thirdly, Christ is the healer, and this dealt with divine healing through faith. And fourthly, Christ was the coming king, and that in particular was woven in together with his dispensational premillennialism. And uh, he wrote this, In the same full sense as Christ bore our sins, Jesus Christ has surely borne away and carried off our sicknesses. Yes, and even our pains, so that abiding in him, this is another part of the language that's often used there, abiding in him, we may be fully delivered from both sickness and pain. So this is some of the the writing that is really um, um, trying to unpack these verses that talk about physical um, healing and deliverance from pain in connection with the atonement. Of course, the modern prosperity, quote-unquote prosperity preachers have taken this kind of thinking and (laughs) wedded it with all kinds of bad theology, even heretical theology in in some cases. Um, So the question is, what does Isaiah 53.4 really mean for disease and healing today? That was the question that was on my mind. Should we expect to be free from sickness because of the cross. And before you answer, um, let me point you to two New Testament passages that quote this text or at least allude to it. The first one is 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 18 through 25. 1 Peter 2, I know most of you are familiar with this. Servants, be subject to your masters, he says, with all respect, not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and you suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So this is another um, implication of Christ's um, silent suffering. It's not one that I brought out this morning. I was focusing on really what I thought was the heart of it. But he does say it's not only, his suffering was not only an act of obedience, his silence and suffering was not only an act of obedience to God to secure your salvation, but it also was the example for you in how to live. But now he says, verse 22, and here's kind of getting to the heart of what I had in mind. He committed no sin, neither was there any deceit found in his mouth. Well, that sounds like what passage? That's Isaiah 53. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
he himself, verse 24, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then he quotes, by his wounds you have been what? Healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have you, now, you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So he's quoting this passage, and in this context, he's got in mind, I think clearly in mind, um, deliverance from sin, right? This healing here in this passage is a healing from sin. He died so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, not dying to sickness and living to health, but dying to sin and living to So this healing here, quoting Isaiah, is a healing that is spiritual. All right? But this is the passage I made reference to last week, Matthew chapter 8. <clears throat> Matthew 8 and verse 14. And when Jesus entered into Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law sick with a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. And that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And then Matthew says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases, and you see even the way it's translated there reflects that the connotation of the Hebrew, that this is a word that's usually referring to sickness and physical pain. So what do we have here? Well, we, and Peter says, quoting this passage, that what was happening is that this is Christ is bringing spiritual healing, healing from moral sickness, as it were. Matthew says, this was fulfilled when Christ bore our physical diseases and delivered people from those physical things. So, uh, which one is in the mind of God as he revealed Isaiah? I say both. Okay, But now we have to ask the question, if we're going to take the both route and we don't want it to be a cop-out, we have to ask, well, how are those both related to each other? How or in what way is Isaiah referring to both deliverance from sin, spiritual healing, and deliverance from sickness, physical healing? And I get get at it by asking another question, and that is this. How are sin and sickness related to each other? How are sin and physical pain? How are sin and death related? So let me give you three answers. Number one, I really don't even need to remind you that physical pain and death is the result of sin. Genesis chapter 3, before the fall there was no death. Romans, Paul says, death came into the world through one man's sin. Sin opened the door, death came in. Before sin, before there was a sin, there was no death. The implication, I think, of that is that there's also no sickness or no no disease before the fall. Because just like, kind of like anger is murder in seed form, sickness is death in seed form. Right? We get sick and we die. We get ill and we die. We may recover, but in the end, some illness, some sickness is going to get us some infirmity in the flesh. 
And even physical pain was brought on by the curse, the thorns that tore the skin of the working man and the bodily pain that characterizes the birthing woman came into the world because of sin. So sickness and pain and death are the fruit of sin. Romans 7 says, What fruit were you getting in those things of of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things or the fruit of those things is death. The fruit of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That much I think we understand. Pain, disease, death are all the results of sin. But number two, sometimes sickness and death are the direct result of some particular sin. This is one that a lot of people don't believe. Our world gives a naturalistic explanation to everything. And naturalistic explanations can get you so far. They can. I'm thankful or the discovery of what's going on in God's nature. But there are things behind that nature that don't, exp- that don't get to what is happening, but why it's happening. And sometimes sickness and death are the direct result of a specific sin or a specific pattern of sin. Um, when Moses' sister rebelled against his authority and God's authority, God struck her with leprosy. When King Jehoram persisted in idolatry and murder, God sent him a fatal bowel disease. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit and God struck them dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says that many had abused the Lord's table and he says, quote, this is why. It's getting to the why, right? This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. I think there's a direct link sometimes and in my view, that's probably what's behind James chapter 5, which is another passage where healing is at the center, right? In James 5, remember, he says, if any of you is sick, let him what? Let him pray and let him ask for the elders to come and anoint him and let him confess his sin and pray and he will be healed, right? And I think that's probably envisioning a case where illness, here's an illness that's directly tied to a specific sin, And this person, in the end, receives healing. What kind of healing? Well, spiritual healing and physical healing all together because they're they're clearly linked here. Uh, I mean, in my view. Uh, But the third thing to have to say quickly and follow up to that is that not all sickness is a direct result of some specific sin. Of course, the prime example in all the Bible, think Old Testament, Job. Job suffered physically, afflicted in great ways because of some particular sin. Well, that's what all his friends said. You've done some sin. This is payback for that sin. Get that sin right and you'll get out of this suffering, Job. And of course, that was not what was going on at all. Or to think of a New Testament example, John chapter 9, the man born blind, Remember the disciples asked him that specific question, why was he born blind? Back to the why, right? Why? What was behind all this? Is it because he sinned? Or is it maybe because his parents sinned and he's reaping the fruit of that? Jesus said, no, neither one. But so that the glory of God might be manifest. So not all physical suffering is a direct result of some specific sin. But in a general sense, are we, we would all say, right, I think we would say this, that physical pain, suffering, disease, and death are the results, the curse of sin upon humanity. And Christ 
became the curse for us by taking our sins upon himself primarily, but also bearing in his body the consequences of sin, namely physical pain and suffering and, yes, brought out to their full end, death. He bore those things for his people. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's not that Christ endured the flu on the cross so that you can be delivered from ever catching the flu in your life. Or that Christ developed arthritis on the cross so you don't ever have to get arthritis when you get old. Or that he got cancer on the cross so you'll never be diagnosed with cancer in your life. So what does it mean? When he says in verse 4, he bore our, he bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. Well, I think this is probably an example of a kind of figure of speech that the Bible uses frequently, that we use in life called metonymy. And in metonymy, you, you substitute the characteristic of something for the thing itself. You call it by its characteristic. And one of the forms of this is substituting the cause of something for its effect. So you say to your child who's given you a little bit of back talk, don't give me any of your lip. And we don't mean his physical lip. His physical lip is the cause, but we're speaking in terms of the effect, what's coming out of those lips, right? John, uh, Matthew, excuse me, Luke, Luke 18. Um, Abraham said to the rich man, uh, remember who was asking, send somebody from the dead to warn my brothers so they don't come into this place um, like me. And Jesus said, uh, um, Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, and, and, if, and, and, and of course, what did they have? They had the scriptures, which were the effect of which Moses and the prophets were the cause. So it's just a common way of, of talking. And I think this is probably what's going on in 1 Peter 2, when, Jesus, when the scripture says, He himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross. What was he bearing? He was bearing the consequences of our sin, right? Suffering and death. So the cause, our sin, was put in the place of the effect, the punishment of sin uh, endured in the body of Christ. Now the flip side of this is a way of speaking that puts the effect in the place of the cause. So for example, in Luke chapter 2, Simeon says, when he sees the infant Jesus, he says, now my eyes have seen your salvation. Well, he saw the cause, but he spoke of the effect. And I think maybe this is what's going on in Isaiah 53 when it says that he bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. Sin is the cause of which illness is one of the effects. So Jesus bore our sicknesses in the sense that he was punished for our sin that causes sickness and pain and disease and death ultimately. Spurgeon put it this way, sin is the root of our infirmities and diseases. And so in taking the root, he took all the bitter fruit which that root did bear. So if, so if the question is, is just that, is there healing in the atonement? I, I think absolutely there is. There is 
freedom from death in the atonement. There is freedom from sickness and disease and everything that leads to death. There's freedom from pain. There's freedom from the curse. Everything that was brought into the world by the curse is undone by the cross, right? But maybe it's better to say, rather than is there physical healing in the atonement, is there healing through the atonement? And I think there absolutely is. Christ didn't just die to save our souls. He died to save us. That is, body and soul. The way God made us in the beginning. God could have made us souls without bodies, but he made us body and soul. Do you know what? In the end, we're going to be body and soul someday. I don't know how that body is going to be. I, don't, I think it's going to be in some manner transformed, but it's going to be the self-same body. Just like our Savior's body is the self-same body that was put into the grave. Christ died to save us, body and soul. Fear him who kills both body and soul in hell. Christ cares about all of you. He cares about your whole being. Does Christ care when you're sick? Yes, you should take heart in that. Sickness is a result of the curse. Christ came to redeem us from the curse. And that means to redeem us from sickness. It almost sounds like I'm ready to ask you to come up here and I'll lay hands on you if you're sick. We'll pray for you. But I do believe that God cares about the whole of our beings. Is any sick? Let him pray. And if God answers with healing, then praise God, that was purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross. There was a price to be paid for that physical healing, for that freedom from disease and pain and suffering. And that was his own suffering and death on the cross. He bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. But the real question probably ought to be refined, not is there healing in the atonement? But when will we experience all the benefits of Christ's atonement, right? That's the question. And uh, we are already and not yet. You guys are all familiar with that. We're already and not yet in glory. Already and not yet experiencing the age to come. Well, how is that? It's because of our union with Christ. Everything in the Christian life goes back to union with Jesus. That is the heart of theology, in my understanding. It's because of our union with Christ. We are united with him in his death, Romans 6, in his burial, in his resurrection, Ephesians 2. We're actually united with him in his enthronement in the courts of heaven. We are raised with him, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are? I feel like I'm still down here suffering. We're already there. Because Christ is already there. We're so linked with Christ that that reality already has effects in us right now. That's the strength of the link that we have with Christ. All of this was purchased for us on the cross. But on the other hand, we are awaiting the full experience of that resurrection and that glorification. We're still waiting for that. We're still down here muddling through in very unglorified states. And this is everywhere in the Bible, right? Romans chapter 6, we are baptized and raised with him. And the present reality is that we're raised to newness of life. What does baptism say? It says when you come up out of the water, it says you're a new person. You're walking in newness of life. 
Paul says in Romans 6, so you also must consider yourselves, verse 11, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Already done. Consider it to be so. But then at the same time, he says there's an implication for the future. When you come up out of the, out of the water, right, you're going to be raised up physically someday. And so he says in that very same passage, verse 5 of chapter 6, for if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be, be united with him in a resurrection like his. We're still waiting, we're still waiting for the, our bodies to sort of catch up to the glory that our souls have in union with Christ in the heavenly places. And what that means for us is that we're in between. And that has implications for how we think about all the things that Christ has purchased for us by his atonement on the cross. And this even has implications for um, Christian perfectionism, which I'm not going to get into as much, but it's related to this. Um, But remember Romans 8. In fact, if you want to look there real quick, I'm going to try to go quickly. We'll finish this up. But Romans 8, Paul Um, puts it this way, verse 18. In this chapter, he's specifically identifying the timeline of the experience of what Christ has purchased for us. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So when he says this present time, he takes note that this present time is characterized by what? I consider that the sufferings of the... The present time is characterized by sufferings. He says, it's not comparable to the glory that is going to be revealed. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. But when is that going to be? I think the answer, you ought to put it right by this place. This is a perfect place to put this other passage in the margin of your Bible. 1 John 3. It's a huge passage, huge passage in thinking about the dynamic of what God is doing. In 1 John chapter 3, he says, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. We know that when he appears, that is, the Son of God appears, we shall be like him. And by the way, the word that appearing there, where the Son of God appears, that's one of those three key words that's used for the... Um, for the, what we call the second coming of Jesus. When he appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So the glorious appearing of the one and only Son of God is our transformation when what we presently are, that is the sons of God, becomes manifest when it appears. Or to use the word, wording of Romans 8.19, when it is revealed. Creation, again, verse 19, is waiting for the revealing or the appearing of the sons of God. That's at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And not only the creation, verse 23 now, let's skip down to 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we what? as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons. Well, what is the adoption of sons? What is the revealing of the sons of God? He says it this way. It is the redemption of our bodies. Now, in one way, my body's already redeemed. 
But in another way, I'm waiting for the fullness of that redemption to be manifest. And that's not going to happen until the Son appears. When we see him in all his glory, it transforms everything, including our bodies get transformed. It's so wonderful. Um, In fact, every aspect of our salvation comes by seeing the glories of Jesus Christ. Seeing him now with eyes of faith produces spiritual deliverance, freedom from the penalty of sin, continuing to look at Christ in his word day after day, hearing his word, continuing to see his glory, transforms us in a progressive sense, delivering us from the power of sin, and seeing him one day visibly, physically, face to face, will transform us to be receiving of the fullness of our redemption. God's, God's salvation, I just love this, God's salvation is designed in his perfect wisdom to magnify, to put before the eyeballs of human beings, spiritually and physically, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ takes up their whole vision. And when that happens, everything gets transformed. That's the way the gospel works. I love it. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul writes again, along the same line, our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We what? We await a Savior. Who will do what? Transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that physical death will be the last enemy to be fully subjected to the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Matthew quotes Isaiah 53, um, verse 4, And he sees in that a fulfillment in Jesus' healing ministry. What is Jesus doing then? Well, he is giving these people a foretaste of the glory that will most certainly come. A foretaste, a preview of the resurrection and the elimination of all physical suffering. And in Christ's first coming, when the Son of God was visibly, bodily present on the earth, how could there not be a breakthrough of end-time glory wherever he went? So what we're doing is we're waiting for his appearing again, in which the fullness of that glory will be finally realized. That is complete freedom from the presence of sin and power of sin completely broken, no more sin, no more temptation. You want to talk about Christian perfection, it's when Christ appears. And it's also when we will receive bodily perfection, when we are free from sickness, pain, and death itself. I want to draw our attention one last time to Matthew's quotation. Now, you don't have to turn there, but just remember what he said. Matthew said, this was to fulfill, Jesus' healing was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, and then he quotes Isaiah, and in his quotation he puts, he took all, or excuse me, he took our illnesses, okay? That word illnesses is the same exact word used in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when Paul has been given a thorn in the flesh. 
And now you see where I'm going with this? What does Paul do about it? He prayed, Lord, take this away, take this away. He prayed again and again and again, Lord, take this thing away. But the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. And my power is actually made perfect in your weakness. That's the word, illness. My power is made perfect in your weakness, in your illness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, Paul says, of my weakness, that's the same word, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Somebody might say, well, what's the matter, Paul, the apostle? Don't you have enough faith to be healed? Don't you believe that there's healing in the atonement, Paul? It's not a matter of weak faith. It's a matter of the glory of God. God's purpose in allowing sin and suffering and pain and loss in Paul's life was to glorify him. That's the same reason the Lord allowed it, essentially in in the life of Job, right? All of his suffering. Even when he takes everything, that person still says, God is worth it. He's still worth it. I still trust him. He's taken everything away from me, but I trust him. (laughs) That is the glory of God. Who else can, about who else can that be said? The Lord is about glorifying himself, about shaping, changing, chastening his people. God is working a deeper healing than just physical. I, I pray for physical healing. I literally do. I pray for physical healing for a number of people. And sometimes the Lord just really burdens on my, puts a burden on my heart just to intercede and to labor in intercession. You know what I mean by that? To kind of argue before God for a little while as to why he should heal this person. But in the end of the day, what I want even more than that is a deeper work of God that cuts away at not just the physical affliction, but the root of it. You know the name Joni Erickson Tata, and I've used I've made reference to her a number of times in this regard, but was injured in a diving accident, became a quadriplegic. Early on, did you know that early on in her life she went to see a faith healer? And uh, maybe you've heard the story. She walked away unhealed, along with, she says, 35 other people in wheelchairs, all waiting in line to get on the elevator, ushered out quickly before the end of the service so that they wouldn't clog the aisles. She was 15th in line of 35 people waiting for her turn on the elevator, and just thinking, oh yeah, well this faith healer, they healed all the people with back pain and sore knees and headaches, but they didn't go for the hard cases, right? Us people over there in the wheelchairs, people that couldn't move their arms and legs, what about us? And she said, God, if you don't care about somebody who's a quadriplegic, how am I, I don't care about you. And she just, she testifies that her heart kind of got hardened toward God. And she uh She just went in the room, she said, got in the room and told her sister, just leave me in the bedroom, draw all the drapes, turn out all the lights, shut the door and leave me alone. She writes, but even in that dark bedroom, hymns would come back to my mind, to the surface of my heart, and I would find comfort, I would comfort myself in the loneliness that I was experiencing and just abide with me. Fast falls the eventide, when darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless. Oh, I'm so helpless. Abide with me. And somewhere in that dark bedroom days later, I cried out to God, if I, if I can't live this way, 
then somebody else is going to have to. Jesus, you're going to have to do it for me. I can't do this thing called, called quadriplegia. Please show me how to live. Those are the days when it was my first plea to God for help, she says. And my sister would come into the bedroom then from that time out, and she'd open up the drapes, let the sun shine in, get me dressed, sit me in my wheelchair, wheel me into the living room, and pull the wheelchair up to a music stand, much like this one. She has one in this talk. Plop a large Bible on it, put my mouth stick in my mouth, and there I would sit day after day flipping the pages through the Bible, this way and that, trying to make sense of it all. She said, of course, I still found I was still interested in healing. I still wanted to know what God's word had to say about it. And I found that in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. You know, the story where Jesus is healing a great deal of diseased and disabled people all throughout the day and long past sunset. And the next morning, the crowds return. And Simon and his companions go rushing around looking for Jesus, and he's nowhere to be found. That's because Jesus has gotten up early and gone off to a solitary place to pray to pray. And when they finally found him, they tell him this crowd of disabled people and diseased people are at the bottom of the hill looking for healing. And I thought what Jesus responded to them was so curious because it says in the 38th verse, Jesus says, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages and towns where I can preach because that is why I have come. And then it hit me. Oh, it hit me, she says. It's not that Jesus did not care about all those sick and diseased people. It's just that their problems weren't his main focus. The gospel was. And the gospel says that sin kills. Hell is real and God is merciful and his kingdom can change you. And Jesus is the way. And whenever people miss this, whenever they just start coming to Jesus to get their pain and problems fixed, the Savior would back away. No wonder I had been depressed. Oh my goodness, I was into Jesus to get my problems and my paralysis fixed. Yes, Jesus cares about suffering people. He cares about when you've been paralyzed for 38 years or 46 years. Jesus cares about suffering, and he spent most of his time when he was on earth relieving it. But the Gospel of Mark showed me his priorities because the same man who healed blind eyes and withered hands is the same one that said, gouge out that eye and cut off that hand if it leads you to sin. I got the picture. To me, physical healing had always been the big deal. But to God, my soul was a much bigger deal. And that's when I began searching for a deeper healing, not just a physical healing, although I was still praying for such. I asked for a deeper healing. A Psalm 139, search me, O God, and try my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Cleanse me from every sin and set me free. And oh, I tell you what, for the last 46 years, that's been my prayer. And God has been answering and exposing things in my heart from which I need to be healed. And so God does not remove the hardships. He allows them, purposes them, plans them, ordains them, and permits them And the pain and the problems and the paralysis become the lemon that he kept squeezing in my life, revealing all sorts of things from which I needed to repent. Bitterness, spitefulness, selfishness. I don't like it when God squeezes the lemon, but I need it. Are you wondering why God hasn't removed the disappointment? Why he hasn't given healing? Why you have so, when you have so desperately asked for it? Well, you know what? God may remove your suffering. And that will be a cause for great praise. But if not, he will use it. So let God mold you and make you, transform you from glory to glory. That is the deeper healing. 
So, the statement is, He took our sicknesses and bore our pains. Did Christ's atonement purchase freedom from sickness and disease? Absolutely. And when you're sick, you ought to pray. We quickly run to the medicine cabinet, or to the chiropractor, or to the doctor, or whoever when we're sick. You run to Christ Jesus who died so that you could be free from sickness. Literally, there is a spiritual element to this. And God forbid that we become bare naturalists in practice. We who claim to be Bible people. When we get sick, we ought to pray for the full experience of our salvation, including freedom from sickness and pain and suffering. And we ought to pray with utmost faith that God is able to do all and will do all. And if he answers you in a week or a month or a year, then that is a foretaste of glory divine. But also, we should be prepared to wait patiently for it. And to wait, if need be, until his glorious appearing. We've had our share of people coming up and saying, let me pray for healing. And you know, sometimes somebody might ask, well, do you believe it's God's will for a sick person, a disabled person, a diseased person? Do you believe it's God's will to heal them? Because that's the issue, right? Do you believe it's God's will to heal them? And my answer is, yes, absolutely. It is always God's will to heal. But (laughs) when will God bring that healing? I leave that entirely up to him. He is not promised to bring all of that now. I'm going to be willing to wait. And I'm going to wait with faith. And I'm going to wait with hope. And I'm going to wait with confidence that everything for which Christ paid will be mine. I'll own it, have it, and I'll wait, and I'll wait in faith. I have to wait a long time, but I'm going to wait until that day that's finally described in Revelation chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is the end. For which all for whom Christ died, are destined. And we trust him in that. We rejoice in that. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for deliverance from the curse, from sickness and pain and disease and deformity and brokenness in body. Oh God, we suffer now. We struggle. We have pain We face the possibility of dying. But, oh God, we confess that we do it 
with confidence that all that Christ has purchased for us will be ours. And with faith we wait for you. Lord, please, would you strengthen the faith of those who are yours today in Jesus' name.